this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 165, and we're recording on Thursday, July 7th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm back with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from BookRiot.com. Hello. I'm back. Yay, I missed you. You guys did a great job. Uh, enjoyable Thank you. show. Uh, your dander was up, uh, entertainingly <laughs> and informatively. It was so up, our poor dander. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we, we, we start with some follow-up. Uh, and I, you want to do this because this was from the show last week. Yes. Yeah. I am so very pleased. Last week, Amanda and I got our dander and our hackles and Speaking all of, of dander, our claw, the, the dander. Dan, right. Yeah. The dander was up and the claws were out mm-hmm. over poor Browser, the library cat, who was getting booted from his home at the library in the very poorly named White Settlement, uh, Texas. And it's like something out of a Colson Whitehead novel, White Settlement, it Texas. really is. <laughs> Like if I pick up the Underground Railroad, yeah. his forthcoming novel, and it's set in a town called White Settlement, <laughs> you, you Texas, be I'll be like, okay, yeah. uh, I completely believe that. I'm ready for that to be real, um, or it is real. I'm ready for it to be fictional. It's absurd uh, because of the public outcry over the ridiculousness of letting Browser get fired because of disagreements between citizen and city council member things that really are straight out of like Congressman Jam's playbook from Parks and Recreation. Browser will get to stay in his job at the library. Um, The city was largely in favor of keeping the cat. Some citizens collected over a thousand signatures for a petition in his favor. And now Browser is safe to roam the stacks. I've got a hot take. I've got a counter take against the cat. (laughs) Oh, you're you're just ready. We're just going to start unpopular Well, it's, it's not for me. Uh, I'm okay. a man of the people, a champion of, of oh, people, as you this know. This is a populist um, anti-cat yeah, it's a, stance. Yeah, it's, it's a populist one. Um, actually, actually, I, I can't take credit for this insight, though I think I somewhat agree with it. Uh, our friend and uh, colleague Rita Mead, who hosts the Dear Book Nerd podcast, a librarian herself, said that you know one thing to think about is uh, allergies. You know, a lot of people are allergic to cats, including some employees. So that's sure. just putting it out there. I'm allergic to cats. Yeah. But you also don't really – oh, did we ever follow up your library adventure? We did. I followed it up with Amanda Oh, last oh that's week. right. That's right. I was going to say, I thought we did, but – and I was like, but we I didn't. Either, like, that's what it was. Yeah. I either did not owe a million dollars or I got amnesty at some point and I couldn't bring myself to ask which yeah. it was. Or a bureaucratic so, error in your favor. Right. You know, so now it. I'm just like every – I've gone in the library a few times since and I am presently obsessed with requesting holds on Ugh. books. <laughs> I learned a weird stat um, from someone I know who now works in the, the, the Multnomah County Library System, which is the library system in Portland. My branch, my local branch here, um, I'm not, uh, Belmont branch, don't be creepy, is um, <laughs> it has the highest level of holds per user ah, in the system. That's interesting. Which I don't, I mean, I guess someone has to have the highest level of holds, right? I mean, even if it's statistically insignificant, it's just some variability. Yeah. But assuming for the moment that there's, I, I was trying to figure out why that might be, like, People that can't get there during normal library hours, people that are more comfortable using the computer. Maybe it's centrally located. Yeah. Like 
my library system will let you pick up holds at any library, ah, at any location, at right. any branch in the area. Like, so if they, if your book isn't in stock at the branch you prefer, they'll move it from one branch to your preferred branch. I would think the central library in downtown Portland would be mm. more centrally located. There's only, a, there's not a subway, uh, a max line that, uh, anyway, I that's just, so interesting. That's, I just thought suddenly that was a data point yeah. that I was trying to attach some uh, relevance to and, and having uh, no I, luck wonder what that is in my county. My library and I think one other in my county have um, drive-through lanes where you can pick ah. up your holds, Boy, you really which do, I haven't done yet. You really do yet. live in the mid-Atlantic if you have a drive-through <laughs> I haven't done it yet. It's kind of like catty corner from a Starbucks with a drive-through mm. lane. You know, welcome to the South. Um, it's you can get your degrees. hold, so you give your card and they, they'll yeah. give you, they'll pull it off the yes. shelf for you. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's 100 degrees here today, so I don't. I wouldn't mm. feel sorry about not wanting to get out of my car. Um, but I, I, I do wonder, like, if those, if branches that somehow feel more convenient, or maybe the demographics in the neighborhood. Yeah, demographics. Are I, I don't know. Heavier what, readers. If, maybe Multnomah County has a bunch of book riot listeners who are just perpetually requesting books. That's that's true. I mean, it could be. It's a relatively, uh, I must say, uh, affluent neighborhood. I mean, it's not the fanciest, but it's in a gentrifying. Gentrifying is a wrong word, I guess. But you know, it's it's getting more expensive to live here. It's um, a lot of educated people, a lot of white people, to be honest, around here. So I don't know if there's a if there's like a demographic correlation that sort mm. of happens to coalesce around this particular branch. Anyway, um, I'm super interested. If if any library, I know we have librarians in the audience. If anyone out there knows more about general library usage stats and what uh, a higher frequency of holds means, I'd certainly love to know because I'm a narcissist and want to know things about things that are close to me. Um, <laughs> but back to why cats are terrible. Um, uh, I, again, a, a small point, maybe. Um, I don't I know mean... what, what percentage of the population is allergic to cats. Certainly a work, you know, if you're a librarian, you're allergic to cats, that would be, I think, uh, a rough go. You know, I can understand that if that had been the argument, like if a librarian oh, no, no, I know, I know, yeah. in that branch were allergic to cats or if they, you know, had users that couldn't come to the library because they were so allergic to cats. But Browser's been there for six years. Sure. And well, as you okay. know, I'm merely a purveyor of marginally um, improved arguments, and that's all I was bringing <laughs> today. Shall we move on to our first Let, sponsor? Let's move around to our first sponsor. <laughs> we're sponsored this week by Harper Paperbacks, the publishers of Erica Johansson's best-selling Queen of the Tearling trilogy. Right now, we're talking about The Invasion of the Tearling. It's volume two in the best-selling trilogy. It's now out in paperback. This has magic adventure, mystery, and romance combined into an epic story in which a young princess must reclaim her dead mother's throne, learn to be a ruler, and defeat the Red Queen, who is a powerful and malevolent sorceress determined to destroy her. BuzzFeed said the Queen of the Tearling is an intoxicating brew of dystopian fiction, high fantasy, science fiction, and a bit of horror. And in the invasion of the Tearling, Johansson takes this trilogy to even greater heights. Got a little bit of everything Mm. here. These have been so popular for the summer. I think it's perfect for these to come out in paperback right now. And I know that because of O'Neill's Razor. Yes. You cannot read this until the trilogy is complete. Well, I can't. But O'Neill's Razor, I mean, these sorts of razors only help you with decision-making process. Right. These so, are idiosyncratic decision-making These are, decision these making are idiosyn- idiosyncratic heuristics that prevent are, me from sadness. Um, these are so bonkers popular. It's not well, they're, funny. they I'm a, I am dying to start. Uh, I'm really excited to start. Um, I gave it to my brother who really liked it and then cursed me because he also, 
uh, as an O'Neill also adheres uh, as, as he can to O'Neill's <laughs> you razor. You tricked him. Well, uh, the- um, I, I think to be honest, when the invasion of Tyrion came out and Amanda was raving about it, I, mm-hmm. I gave him a recommendation because he likes that sort of, he likes fantasy, yeah. YA, you know. And I'm not sure, to be honest, that I knew it was a trilogy. Uh, oh. whenever. I sort of sleeping giants. Well, him. you won't have to wait too much longer because no, the I third know. and the final volume, it's called The Fate of the Tearling, mm-hmm. goes on sale November 29th. Yeah, uh, it's great. I'm really excited for this thing to be over so I can dive in. And Amanda, I think, was she the early one on, on the I book right side? I believe that she was, yeah. yeah. But it has Amanda spread. loved it. I think she, Amanda might be blurbed on the paperback of Queen of the Tearling. Oh, yes. I think that's um, right. There's a lot of Book Riot love for this series. So I'm really pleased that they have sponsored this week. Again, it's The Invasion of the Tearling by Erica Johansson. That's the second book in the Queen of the Tearling trilogy. We will have a link in the show notes where you can buy it or you can pick it up wherever books are sold. And the last one, The uh, Fate of the Tearling, comes out November 29th. So yeah, it's, get it's those holiday. library holds now, friends. I think it's going to be my holiday reading. Oh, I, I want one of the. You know what I like? Uh, I'm not much of a hardback buyer these days, but I'm a bit of a sucker for those. The trilogies, you know, the series is now over, and here's a set of all the hardbacks. Yeah, the boxed set. The box you set. You know, I've always. I, I haven't really had an occasion recently to buy one. Um, I guess because a trilogy hasn't finished that. Um, I wanted a paper, but this would one because I think this one I'd also pass on. You know, I'd, I'd share around. I'm mm-hmm. um, looking forward to that. Thanks so much to. Uh, uh, Invasion Harper. of the Tearling for yeah. sponsoring the show. All right. Where do you want to go next? Let's We're do more, more follow-up. Let's do okay. this. The Kickstarted romance-only bookstore, The Ripped Bodice, opened in L.A. Uh, over some unit of time that has passed. Oh, it's been a couple months now. We're a little behind, but yes, we wanted to yeah. follow up on this. Yeah, uh, we talked about it when they were running the Kickstarter. Right. Uh, it's the, it's only the second of its kind in the world. The other one, the only romance-only bookstore is in Canberra City, Australia. Um, and this is LA. It's called The Ripped Bodice, and it was kickstarted, and it's open. It is open. You can go there now. Uh, really, I, I'm, we're gonna the the link that we'll include in the show notes podcast. Uh, excuse me, bookwrite.com slash listen to navigate to the show notes for this another episode of the Bookwrite podcast. A really nice article on Racked. Um, which is a website devoted to, to buying stuff uh, with good pictures and you get a sense of it. A nice looking bookstore. Um, and I think I'm going to be super interested to see how it does. Me too. I hope that they do well. Um, and we've got a bunch of contributors in LA. I know we've got listeners in LA. This one's in Culver City. I would love to hear from some folks who go check it out. Um, when the article landed on the Book Riot back channels, it sparked a little bit of a flurry because we have some contributors that are relatively new to romance mm-hmm. and didn't know that, like, it was shocking to them that, you know, there are mystery bookstores um, all over the United States. There are other kinds of specialty bookstores, but and like plenty sci-fi, fantasy-focused bookstores. Like, how could there not be mm-hmm. a romance-focused bookstore? Um, and then we had a long conversation about how you know, this is really groundbreaking, not only because it's the first one in the country, but also because so many independent bookstores don't have romance sections. And there's this like self-fulfilling prophecy of indie bookstores being like, well, people don't come in here asking us for romance. We don't think it would sell. Um, yet it's the most popular genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes a huge amount of money for the publishing industry. And when indies do add romance sections and start making themselves friendly to romance readers, magically the sales appear. Yeah, it's I really... Think- I if think you build it, they will come. This one is going to be interesting, but maybe not representative of what sort of romance-only bookstores all over the, you know, like this sure. became a trend because it's going to be, I think, we're already we're getting a sense from people, I mean, you know, people that I follow in romance, the romance world online, they're sort of going to make, go there as sort of a pilgrimage, right? As sort of a, 
I don't know, expression of support and excitement that such a thing exists that I don't know would be transferable if suddenly there were 400 of them all over the place, right? Yeah, like, sure. And I, I don't know necessarily that what we need is 400 No, 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 of no, them. no, yeah. no. Well... But romance in every, like romance should be in every bookstore. Yes. There, are, there is fair. a romance reader in the neighborhood of every bookstore in this country. Do you know <laughs> romance any, should be in every anything bookstore. Anything about um, parts of the country that romance are more popular in? I don't know the answer to this. Um, I don't know if there's any demographic oh thing man, going on. I feel like we had stats or a map or something, maybe yeah. from the Romance Writers of America um, thing in the last several months about... Or maybe maybe that was subgenres of romance. I think those numbers exist, but I can't remember where we found them. <laughs> yeah, I just don't know if, say, um, just to pick a, a city at random, Atlanta, for whatever reason, would be mm. especially amenable to having a romance-only bookstore or you know, Indianapolis or sure. know, Detroit or whatever else it might be. L.A. to me doesn't seem to be, for whatever whatever my biases are about romance, and I'm, uh, I've been working on them for a long time, and I think I'm finally at least a reformed snob, uh, to be honest. Um, I, I wouldn't have picked L.A. out of a hat. I don't know what I would have picked, but I'm not sure. Is there something special about L.A. or just where these women uh, happen to be? I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I think I would have picked like hmm, – I think I would have picked New York. It's kind of interesting that there's not one in New York. Well, New um, York is also the home of literary snob. It is the, the mothership of the – Snob that's true, industry. but it's also that's true. There's just so many people. Maybe, I mean, maybe a counter counter. Right, there's that. so many people, or maybe like um, New Orleans. It feels like mm. New Orleans could support. Oh, really? A I was thinking more like store. Chicago. Chicago, yeah, that's interesting. You know, a little um, more down to earth, but you still have density where you can support specialty stores. If um, I had to make just a wild guess, oh, here about... we go. This is the book right. <laughs> this is what we do. Wild, unsubstantiated it's the guesses for the win. Show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my wild speculation would be like that. Romance would be most popular in the Midwest and the South. Yeah, I'm thinking suburb. You know, large suburbs of midwestern cities, like uh, mm-hmm. uh, one we both know well, like Overland Park, Kansas. Yeah. Right. You would think something like that would do well. But I'd be super interested to see. I wish, we wish them the best of luck um, here. So if, it's at the Ripped Bodice. Um, if you're going to be in L.A. Uh, and you're interested, then it looks like a beautiful store. And they do a lot of recommendations. And they have some other programs that I think you can participate in if you're not close. I think there's a subscription thing and signed editions. And they're going to they're gonna make a whole – you know, I think, I think the um, – you know, an interesting you – know, I was talking to Jen, our events director, who's a longtime employee of uh, uh, and, and uh, coordinator of events for Word Bookstore in, uh, in New York. You know, there's a lot. The, the future of the bookstore chatter is like so long in the tooth that it's almost unbearable at this point. But this idea of a specialty store with a community around it that has also a life that's online, you know, where you can participate in it in some other ways is super interesting to me. Mm-hmm. You know that I, I don't know. I don't know that necessarily it's going to be the way of the future. You know, I try not to get in sort of techno futurist prognostication um, dribble, but that there's an interesting model there for a brand that happens to have a store uh, about something that people care about and can attach specific values and and uh, products to. Um, very interesting. It, it's a it's a wonderful looking store. They've got like a nice big. It looks like an old velvet fainting couch, like right yeah, in the middle looks- of the store. It's perfect. Uh, it's, you know, it's like the right color that you see on romance. Um, and they've got them broken down by genre and they've got classics and, you know, a nice um, octagonal 
display of a bunch of different Jane Austen editions, you know, which is cool from mm-hmm. graphic novels to everything else. So a uh, romance also um, dis- defined in the in a wide sense. Uh, yes. Too is very interesting. Yeah. Please go on field trips and tell yeah, us all about it. Meanwhile, your... I'll be like secretly plotting how to make the case for our next round of business meetings to be back on the West Coast. <laughs> oh, yeah, because we were in LA. And we we, <laughs> we were in LA in it. February, yeah. but the store wasn't open yet. I would um, love to go. Let's do um, uh, the week in Amazon real yeah. quick. Hey, before we do Amazon, can I do random bookstore related yeah, excitement of course. for I, things? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, My, Josh. Yeah. Is that where we're going? Yes, yes that's where we're going. This yeah. is totally personal, um, but it's relevant. because we've talked about the growth of independent bookstores. One of my dearest friends and longtime podcasting partner on Bookrageous and just a fabulous independent uh, bookseller and a writer in his own right has teamed up with another former bookseller friend of his, Emily Russo Murtaugh. This is my friend Josh Christie and Emily Russo Murtaugh, and they are opening a new bookstore called Print in Portland, Maine this fall. Um, They just announced it yesterday. It's Sounds like it's going to be beautiful. Um, I trust both of their sensibilities as people who love books and people who love book people um, to just support and encourage reading culture. Uh, they're going to have like a Emily is the daughter of Richard Russo. And so he's going to do some reading series in mm. the store that sound very cool, um, but could not be happier for two smarter people um, launching a new indie bookstore venture. Uh, they focus on children's. They're going to have an event mm-hmm. series like, you know, this is the kind of thing. This is what bookstores, I think need to do. I think, I, I don't, honestly, I don't know enough about the history of independent bookstores, especially to say there was a day where you had a shingle and a bunch of tables and people would come in. I, I, I don't know if that was ever the case, but I think for certain that's not something that's going to work super great right now. Um, so anyway, that that's what's going on. Congratulations. Yeah. That's going to be in Portland, Maine. Uh, opening yeah. in November? In the fall. In yeah, the fall just sometime. I think in the fall. Okay. Um, I'll also be plotting secret business meetings there. Yeah, secret <laughs> meeting, secret business meetings to uh, just so happens to uh, co-locate with interesting bookstores that we'd like to visit. I, yeah, Liberty lives nearby. Yeah. I can make an argument make for it. it. <laughs> okay, let's do this week in Amazon. Yeah, I mean, this is not just book specific at all, but anything that Amazon does that uh, applies to the wider site, of course, is going to apply to books too. Uh, and, and relates to independent bookstores in, in, in a way, I think, that I don't know if it's good or bad, but Amazon is quietly changing how it entices people to buy, buy, and this is a piece in the New York Times, we'll link to it if you want to read the whole thing, slowly and quietly eliminating list prices. So that thing that we've become so accustomed to, if you buy anything on Amazon, books especially, you have the list price crossed out with like a red line or something, and then right next to it, the Amazon price. So you could immediately see the kind of discount you were getting. And the value proposition of Amazon, at least initially, was price, right? It was, it's a lot cheaper, and here's how much cheaper it is. Um, And they're eliminating list prices now. And so I think this, this story suggests that list prices are going away because... Well, what's your understanding of what's the because? Well, so there's a the because here I think is best summed up by um, a guy named Larry Compo, who's from Clarkson University. He's a professor of consumer studies who's quoted in the piece. And he said that the Amazon discounting strategy where they've shown you the list price, which consumers essentially perceive as like the absolute value of mm-hmm. the thing, like the book is listed at twenty six ninety five, The Amazon price is, you know, eighteen ninety five. So you're saving eight bucks mm-hmm. um, that that was building for the future. And he says the future has arrived. Amazon doesn't have to seduce customers with a deal because they're going to buy 
anyway. Um, I think I told you when we were talking about it on the back channel, it feels to me like stage two of a thing. Like stage one was get everybody in the door by perpetually having everything on get share raise prices that's a classic business move yeah teaching customers that they would always get the best price at amazon now that they come to amazon for everything and believe that our price is the best price we can just show them our price Mm -hmm. we don't have to show them what the quote-unquote like absolute price would be or what the list price is and that means that we can slowly start to raise them so like your hardcover that amazon might have sold for 10 bucks off maybe now they're only selling it for eight or six bucks off list list price and they don't have to show you that discrepancy because you're already there planning to buy it from Amazon. Yeah. Um, um, the other thing that they have been involved in some cases of fake discounting suits, um, mm. you know, basically that it's not really a discount. You know, if the list price isn't necessarily what people would need to get, would get charged other places, they give this example of a coffee maker or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where, you know, Brevel, what, Brevel, I think that's how you say that, was charging, was selling the machine for $500 on its site even though the list price was 800 and then they had, so it's like, is that a really a discount? Or is, are you falsely, you, falsely is the wrong, is it misleading? I don't even know what it is necessarily, but you're, con, you may be conveying information that the, the buyer doesn't necessarily have the capacity to understand, right? That right. somehow you're giving it for $300 off when really that's not the case because you can get other, anyway, they, there's a whole bunch of possibilities about consumer misinformation and Amazon is so big that they can be sued for almost any reason by anyone at any time. (laughs) Um, And so some of that, it also helps that then they can disentangle the reason you shop at Amazon from just prices. Right. Um, They want you, I think, to use Amazon because it's convenient and you like shopping there. It's easy. It's, you know, shows up fast. You get a good price. You have confidence you're getting a good value. Um, you can do it all at one go. Well, and if that's that, all the case, then it's not – you don't need to discount as much anymore. Right. And there's in, inertia and yeah. laziness, you know, not to be discounted in human behavior mm-hmm. that if you're used to going to Amazon and thinking you're getting the best deal, even if you know that they might be slowly raising their prices, like what's the motivation to go to a bunch of other websites and see if you can get a better price? And yeah. then is the time that you would spend going to those other sites worth however much or little – you would save. Mm-hmm. Um, have you listened to Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely? I read, read it a million his? years ago, and I can't quite remember yeah. the gist of it. I have to say, it's There's one of the. These, like, he's an economist, and there are these classic studies from before the internet where they would ask people, like, okay, imagine you're going to go buy a TV, and that, like, Walmart has the TV yeah. on sale for a hundred bucks, but you hear that. Kmart 20 miles away has the right. TV on sale for 95. Like, is it worth it to drive the 20 miles to save the $5? Mm-hmm. Or would you drive 20 miles to save the $5 or the $10? And like, what's the threshold at which driving that distance becomes yeah. worth it? And people would drive the distance to get the thing with the cheaper price tag, even when it was not right. rational to do it, when the gas and the time were more costly than the savings. And I think Amazon's relying on that same principle here. You could click around to, you know, to Walmart and to Google shopping and to all of those other things to Mm -hmm. try to compare prices, but you're already at Amazon and they already have your credit card and you're paying for prime anyway. And it gets there in two days. I mean, it's, it's cagey. It's an interesting move. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Uh, One of the indie booksellers that I follow was pointing out that um, this is going to be really hairy for 
booksellers. Um, and I'm sure that people in other industries feel that it's going to be hairy for them as well, because booksellers do rely, like print bookstores do rely on that list price. And they often sell at list price because they can't afford to run mm-hmm. with the with using books as a loss leader. When your business is books, you can't use them as the loss leader the way that Amazon can. So it'll be interesting to see how that affects the continuing you know, battle about perception of the value of books. It would seem um, to me that Again, even if, even if let's say let's say Amazon keeps the prices the same as they were, right? Like you can still mm-hmm. get the same quote unquote discount for a hardcover. You know, you're paying seventeen rather than twenty seven or whatever it might be. If the the degree to which you're not paying list is not immediately apparent, that would seem to me to even if the price same help physical bookstores because you're it's, you're not reinforcing this mispricing. Yeah, that's true. Uh, The perceived mispricing. That's just a guess. And then on the other hand, if they raise prices a couple of dollars even, then you're shrinking the difference in price, which you think would also help independent books. Then you're just really relying on, well, they're used to buying it from Amazon. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's that's pretty interesting too. Yeah, that is. Um, Yeah, well, we're talking about Amazon, just a quick follow up I forgot to put in the agenda. We we talked last week about uh, the listeners that had the highest oh, yes. settlement values yeah, yeah. from and at that point it was a listener named Sarah who I think got $208 mm-hmm. back from Amazon. We have since heard directly of another listener who I think had $235 mm-hmm. in credit and then um, Melissa, one of our longtime listeners is a Barnes & Noble bookseller and she this is secondhand but she had a customer who had $630 yeah. in credit. Well, well, it's um, not surprising, really, because if you're a heavy Kindle user yeah, yeah. over several years mm-hmm. and you're buying lots of bestsellers, yep. you got six bucks a pop. So it's only a yep. hundred books. You do. It's it, you can you can do that math really easily. That's yeah. the highest one we've heard so far. Um, is that six thirty? So if you or someone you know got an even higher settlement mm-hmm. uh, from Amazon or. Uh, any of the booksellers as a result of that iBooks case, please continue to let us know. Yeah, it's it's uh, interesting, and you know, and there's some. I've seen some, and this is not necessarily in the book world, but in the larger tech world, Apple talk world, which I I follow a little bit just because it's a hobby of mine. There was talk about, well, you know, what good is this going to do? Four million dollars, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's not going to, but you know what? There are a lot of book buyers out there that are getting real cash money back in their pockets. And Mm -hmm. it is a demonstrable amount of money of how these readers were damaged, according to the DOJ, at least in in the trial, by... Uh, Apple and the big five publishers, you know, actions. I mean, I don't know how yeah. else to say it. Like 600 bucks is a, a lot of money. That is a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Um, so anyway, please do check your accounts. It, all the yes. ebook places, Kobo, Barnes and Nobles, Apple, Google Play, Amazon, go check your accounts because I have stuff all over the place. I have like five bucks here and eight bucks there. Yeah, so. and we've heard, or I've heard, sort of diffuse distribution methods. Mm-hmm. Like people have gotten checks in the mail. Also. Oh no way! Yeah, yes. Who was that? I think it was Colleen. Uh, Colleen Lindsay. Oh. I think got a check huh. in the mail from who? <laughs> I don't remember. It was one of them, uh, but there was a picture of it. I saw a check on someone's Facebook page. Um, so watch out for like if it looks like junk mail, it might actually be dollars. Yeah, right. If you get a random envelope, a skinny envelope yeah, from Barnes and open Noble, it, open, open that, open that stuff. business. Yeah. So this is the <laughs> one of the strangest stories um, that we've encountered so it, far. This is so weird. It, and 
We get one. We get something like this every few years, where it's mm-hmm. a nonfiction book that turns out to be non nonfiction <laughs> in some way. Sure. Um, this is the the book by Gay Talese, um, and the name of the book is The Voyeur's Motel. And there was a he, there was a long article which is that came out in the New Yorker a few months ago. Um, an amazing story of a hotel owner, I think in Colorado, Aurora, mm-hmm. Colorado. Yeah. Who. Um, apparently owned the hotel and then used it as a, I guess, you know, a homegrown voyeuristic fantasy land where he just could spy on all the uh, uh, visitors. Uh, mm-hmm. A terrifying, yeah. creepy, amazing it's so story. gross. Gross it's and so... fascinating and a voyeur. I mean, and, being voyeuristic about his voyeurism really is what And the when the New Yorker piece came out, it was like, okay, so Gay Talese, who's a very well-recognized writer... Yes. Um, and worshipped by certain corners of publishing, uh, has essentially known for decades that this person was committing a crime um, and was just gathering the person's story to turn it into a book and to sell the mm-hmm. story. Um, I, I I think it's totally gross. Well, I, does, do, we know, do we know that Talese was doing research while it was still happening? I, I'm a little fuzzy on the timeline. Um I think, it, but this journals, I think yeah. after the fact is what's using. Anyway, uh, that, it, I don't know about that side. That, you're right. If he knew and it was still happening, that's total. it's another issue. But what's what's really making the rounds is it turns out that the dude um, didn't actually own the hotel for yeah. a big stretch of the time that Talese describes. Um, he didn't buy it until later than Talese describes. Um and Talese himself and, says the source of my book, Gerald Foos, F-O-O-S, is certainly unreliable. He's a t- dishonorable man, totally dishonorable. I know that. I did the best I could in this book, but maybe it wasn't good enough. And then he disavowed and, it. And then... Yeah. he Yeah. He disavowed it one day last week or earlier this week and said, I should not have believed a word that mm-hmm. he said. I'm not going to promote this book. How dare I promote it when its credibility is down the toilet? Yeah. And then the next day... <laughs> yeah. He disavowed his disavowal. Basically, like this, it this just feels like a just a, a circus. Yeah, and it brings home again. If if you didn't know, you're reminded uh, in stark relief that most nonfiction books aren't fact checked. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the New Yorker usually does, which is not being talked about here. Mm. So that's interesting to me. Um, I don't know the nature of that story. Like, what did they fact check? Did they not? Because in the excerpt, I, I don't know if they have different editorial standards um, for something like that. But it's a it's a huge controversy. And what's interesting that if Talese had found out about the discrepancies, then the book could have been included those discrepancies. Like, what is right. the real story? Like, I sure. think as interesting, and- if maybe not even more interesting, of a mm-hmm. profile and a story. Um, in a way, very interesting that Talese didn't look at the records. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here that it seems like if you looked at the real estate records, you could find most of the stuff is publicly available. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I am yeah, very it, confused about what is going on and what isn't going on it, here. Yeah, it's 
It's like several years ago, there was a book called The Lifespan of a Fact yeah. by John Degata and Jim Fingle. That was about a, a an alleged crime that was committed in Nevada, I think. And all the stories about what happened were so tangled that the process of trying to fact check them became the story. Yes. Um, and the book is fascinating and messed up in its own ways. And Talese could, certainly could have gone that direction here um, in the disavowal of the disavowal that he made the next day. I, this is just bonkers to me. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, you know, I was surprised and upset about this business of the later ownership of the motel in the 80s. It occurred after the bulk of the events that are covered in my book. Um, I was upset and probably said some things I didn't and don't mean let me be clear. I'm not disavowing the book and neither is my publisher. If down the line there are details to correct in later editions, we'll do that. And there are some statements. This is a New York Times piece, the follow-up um, from Morgan Intrican, who's the publisher of Grove Atlantic, which is who's putting out Talese's book. And it just seems to me like Gage Lee's got found out that like somebody had not been doing it. He hadn't been doing his homework. Yeah. Grove Atlantic had not done their homework. Then the New Yorker didn't do their homework. And Or maybe he, did just for the piece they had. Like I don't actually yeah. I read the piece, but I don't remember and the discrepancy, how the discrepancies line up. Instead of what's in anybody it. admitting that they did anything wrong, yeah. some like I, I don't know Morgan Intrican. I'm just putting on my you know speculation hat again. But it looks like the publisher basically called Gage Lee and was like, "We're publishing this book. Like it has all this juice behind it, or and all if this we don't, you owe us a million and a half dollars, right? Or whatever yeah, your we're publishing was. this book, or you're not getting any dollars, and we're suing and, you, right? For and that's all the how overhead. you. <laughs> I mean, seriously, yeah, I wouldn't no, be right, surprised. Right, no, exactly, and like that's how you get the disavowal of the disavowal. Well, I hope it has a forward or something. It needs a. It needs something. You know the thing went to press already. Like it's. I think it's coming out in July later this month. So the like the book is done. It's going to come out with. I would guess no note. <laughs> that's insane. That if that's if that's true, that's really insane. Um, Sam Mendes has optioned the book for a movie. Which now the movie actually I think gets more interesting with this because then Gay yes. Talese himself as a character and you're sort of in right. one of those in cold blood. You know. Truman Capote movies situations mm-hmm. where the uh, the the writing of the book and the unknowns and who did what and who knew what when becomes a part of the story. I think should make a fascinating movie and write up right. Sam Mendes' alley. I would think there is an interesting and more honest story to tell yeah. about this story and the whole thing. This reeks of privilege as well because of who Gay Talese mm-hmm. is. If he were an unknown, his you know deal I think would have been canceled if you weren't an 84 year old white man that is worshipped by certain corners of publishing he wouldn't be getting he wouldn't be getting away with like with publishing this book believing statements from someone that are unsubstantiated that he didn't check that his publisher did not check just because it's a salacious story it does make you wonder doesn't it um about the long history of nonfiction being fat checked that how much of a crowdsourced enterprise it is now with these sorts Mm. of things like if In Cold Blood comes out in 2014, I'm sure there are people on Reddit doing mm-hmm. stuff. You know, I mean, I'm sure there is the the apparatus of interest gears up and starts to, you know, expose yeah, these kinds of things to scrutiny. 
There's two vectors of grossness to me about this, and one is the lack of scrutiny mm -hmm. or the apparent lack of scrutiny to give them a little mm -hmm. benefit of the doubt, perhaps. And the other is that it's a gross story to begin with, what this hotel owner did or claims that he did, and then to spend however many years talking to him and you know reading the diaries and making a book out of it to exploit that for entertainment value and for what your advance was and for sales when crimes were committed against people and Talese doesn't seem concerned about that in the least um, is just like, why is the why is there a book deal for this? Why are we spending money on this thing? I mean, OJ Simpson had a book deal for if I did it. Yeah. I understand that people get deals for gross things all the time. Um, but this just, ah. Well, much like when Ghost of the Watchmen came out, I, I'm more okay with the book coming out as long as there's a Acknowledgement of what the book is and what the book isn't. Yeah, and that went super well for Ghost and I, Watchmen. I know. I'm just. I, I'm not saying I'm pleased. I'm just saying like you. Uh, the creepiness of the story is a separate and also maybe distressing issue. Um, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms quite so much. But in terms of this book and this disavowal and discrepancies right. or whatever, a author's note or an editor's intro or a note from the publisher saying, "Here's what's here's what's happened." Read this book with the knowledge, and maybe even set up a website. Go here mm -hmm. to find out more. Um, we already the book has already been the manuscript been finalized, but we thought the book and the controversy and the discussion around it is part of the story. Now, you know, go forth and decide. Because um, then, if people want to shell out their twenty seven bucks to buy and read the book, they know what they're doing. You know, mm -hmm. they know what they're getting. Um, I think it's that's that would be incumbent upon a responsible publisher to do, um, if at all feasible, uh, at all, frankly, you know, or eat eat the book. Yeah, and they're not going like I don't have any faith that they're going to do that thing. No, nope. so they should eat the book. Yeah, or postpone it. I mean, that would be the other thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you you probably published forty thousand copies. Okay, like you take the hit on those. But then you release it a month later with another you a, intro, you know. You have a couple op opportunities to do something right here. Yeah. Um, please do one of please, them. Please pick one. Please pick a <laughs> yeah, door. pick one right thing. That would be great. Yeah. Are you going to do our last sponsor here? And we got a yes, my dander's all up again. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. We'll put, put it back <laughs> down. Okay. Put it away. This is a fun uh, sponsor to go to. So that'll be a nice shift. Mm -hmm. uh, this is sponsored by Hachette Books, who published I'm Your Biggest Fan by Katie Coyne. Uh, Katie is... The, the the book is about the executive editor of People Magazine. That's who Katie Coyne is. She provides an unfiltered and hilarious look at her life alongside the rich and famous, and she reveals how being a fangirl led to celebrity close encounters she could only dream of having growing up. Uh, for most of us who are just regular fans of things, meeting your favorite musician or a movie star is a dream that will probably never come true, and even if it does, it doesn't quite go as planned. Uh, Katie Coyne, as the executive editor of People, is a seasoned celebrity journalist and so she's tapping directly into the enduring cultural obsession that we have with celebrities. She can do that better than anyone else, and she has the stories to tell it. Uh, for 20 years, she's had close encounters with A-listers from Michael Douglas to Tom Hanks to Neil Patrick Harris and everyone in between. And this chronicles her journey from New York Post's page six, where she learned the valuable lesson, if you want to keep a secret, tell it to absolutely no one, to good housekeeping, where she quickly mastered the art of begging celebrities to appear on the cover. Apparently, mm. they're not exactly 
quick to say yes to good housekeeping. Mm. Uh, and finally, to People Magazine, where everyone who's anyone wants to be featured. Mm. Uh, this sounds entertaining and fun. The ultimate book to get lost in this summer, especially if you're enchanted by the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. Again, it's called I'm Your Biggest Fan, Encount- Awkward Encounters and Assorted Misadventures in Celebrity Journalism by Katie Coyne. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. You can buy it wherever books are sold. I'm going to read the crap out of this book. I am on like this. I told you yesterday, Mm -hmm. I think I'm on this kick of like fiction that's just gossipy and great. uh, And reading someone's real life gossip and celebrity encounters just sounds perfect. Yeah, sounds really good. Uh, A good dishy behind the scenes look at a world that is actually maybe a little more interesting than the the thing it produces, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. You know, like the How celebrity culture celebrity, gets made. Yeah, is, celebrity yeah. gets made is, is super interesting. Thanks to them, so much for them to sponsoring the show. A couple smaller stories here to wrap up the show this week. Um, this one I was thought was really interesting. I linked to it in Critical Linking over the weekend. Um, JetBlue and the city of Detroit are teaming up um, to install five custom book vending machines to distribute free books to children in Detroit all summer long. Um, And these sort of, they're using the word book desert, um, where it's hard to get to a library um, or a bookstore or, you know, the the neighborhoods, you know, it's not affluent neighborhoods where the kids are necessarily going to have money to buy their own books themselves. Um, They're going to, let's see, there there was a vote which yeah, I, I'm co- surprised the, the we didn't way it hear happened about is really this. interesting. I know. It feels like this is something we would have written about. Um, JetBlue hosted, which is the airline, hosted an online book battle voting competition where customers could vote for one of five cities. I'm assuming these are all cities JetBlue flies to. Detroit, Houston, Fort Lauderdale, Los Angeles, New York, to receive new children's books. Nearly 1.3 million online votes were cast for Detroit, and they got 48% of the vote. Hey, good job, Detroit. Good job, Motor City. Um, they got online. Um, so yeah, let's see. We'll link to the show, the the article here. I don't see, and I was looking for it when I was linking to the to the story. Uh, how you find out where they are? Uh, oh yeah. So I don't know. I guess if you live in Detroit or you know someone that lives in Detroit mm-hmm. and know a kid um, that would that would could benefit and, from this, you can maybe do go on googling. Um, yeah, the program is called Soar with Reading. Soar with Reading. So you yeah. could also uh, Google that, and you might you know, be able to turn up which cities or which parts of Detroit it's in. Very cool. And it's worth noting, this is just free books that they get yep, to keep. Get to keep. Um, and also goes along with some of these studies. We, you know, we, we, we've seen one recently, we've seen a couple recently. Um, we put them in methodology corner, but they're still holding up, I think, to some degree, that having books matters. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't, it's not clear why exactly. It's not clear how many. It's not clear which. Um, but having books matters. And there's, you know, it looks like a vending machine. I Now, I don't know how it works necessarily. Do you get one? Can you just keep pressing the buttons? These are all things I'd be super interested mm-hmm. to know um, uh, how it works. Uh, is it really just, it's not attended? Or is there an attended by it? I, I don't know. Super interesting to find out about. Uh, if you go and find one or know someone that does, I'd sure like to hear about it. But um, there was, I think, back in the dark ages of the site, like three or four years ago, um, I know some public libraries are using, they're more sophisticated than sort of a rote vending machine, but they're automated book dispensing sort of stations mm-hmm. where you can go pick up like the 50 most popular books in circulation and check them out and then return them there as a way of expanding the physical reach of the library services without having to build a new facility and having staff and hours and so on and so forth. Um, so the 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 autom- you know, di- digital and electronic 
distribution means are expanding themselves the reach of physical books because it allows things like automation and circulation and returning and digital checkout and scanning your card at the actual um, point of lend, I guess, is what you would say for a library rather than point yeah. of sale. Um, very interesting stuff going on in that world as well. Um, you know, you don't get all the library services. We all know that libraries do a lot more than just get books to people. But the minimum viable product of a library is getting books to people. Um, and it seems like there's some ways to do that uh, cost efficiently. So I, I'm super excited about this. Good job. Thanks to JetBlue for trying that out. And good job, Detroit. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, very good. More just if you want eye candy while we're talking about yes. book vending machines, really pretty cool ones uh, from an independent bookstore called Books Actually mm-hmm. in Singapore have been rolled out. Uh, one of them is located at the National Museum of Singapore. The other can be found at the Singapore Visitor Center. And each machine offers 20 to 22 titles. The selections will be changed every four to six weeks. Um, the pro- the uh, project was inspired by Penguin Cubator, a vending machine rolled out by Penguin books in london in the 30s what <laughs> yeah penguin cubator <laughs> boy i thought we'd scrape the bottom of the barrel for book related names but yet there's de- there's depth still unplumbed for bad book names. <laughs> or they they were just plumbed so long ago that we, <laughs> yeah right that we just didn't know but these look really cool i love this notion of like 20 titles that yeah. rotates every couple of weeks um even if you're a power reader you could do that yeah. um or you know re- stock your reading life i wonder where these- the place where do you think places that could you know, you'd like to have a book vending machine you know like airports oh, usually yeah. have a bookstore i guess like bus mm-hmm. stations yeah something like that where maybe it w- maybe wouldn't I don't know. I'm just trying to think. Maybe like lobbies of big convention center oh, hotels. Oh, I like that one. I like that one. I like that one um, a lot. Yeah. You know, I kind of was thinking about that during BEA because McCormick Center in Chicago is huge and it's nice and beautiful, but it's in a part of the city where there's not much stuff. Mm. Like you're far away from the neighborhoods that have the like popular restaurants. You're far away from a lot of shopping, but the hotel that's attached to the convention center is super convenient. Mm. Uh, we didn't stay there. That it's pricey, but uh, I knew some folks who stayed there who were like, "This is nice because I have my hotel right next to the convention center, but there's nothing else convenient." I wonder, like, um, at some like major beaches, like big busy oh, beaches, you know, you could yeah. have like beach reading stuff right there. That'd be interesting. Sure, yeah, or like, um, like if there was one as you roll into like Duck in the Outer Banks, yeah, or, uh, where we've like both that. been, like, there's kind of nothing. There's nowhere to go shopping. Yeah, the closest bookstore I think on the Outer Banks is in Mantio way down there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a long way. Or like... Um, There's one in a... Don't you think it would be the, cool for like... I mean, I don't know if you have them in Richmond. But you probably do like big mm-hmm. outdoor, you know, bars that have big outdoor seating areas that people like to go when it's nice. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I see a lot of people reading in bars and coffee shops. Oh, a, co- or, a big uh, coffee shop would be cool. A big coffee shop. And Richmond has all this river, yeah. uh, riverfront area with big parks. It would be cool to have a book vending machine in some of the more popular parts of the mm. park system. Um, oh, I want to do that. Yeah, I, Let's maybe we need to do, book vending a, machine. Maybe we need to do a post that's like ten places we could, we'd love to have a book vending machine. That's a, not a bad yes. idea. Yes, no, that's not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. Um, let's do. Let's call that a show. I think it's a you show. Think? Yeah, that's a good like show. A show. It's been a good week. Yeah, yeah. And on uh, and on being excited about um, selling yeah. books out of robots, little dander, and a lot of enthusiasm. Yeah, there we go. Um, as always, you can find show notes to this and other uh, back episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. Uh, if you've got feedback for us, you can shoot us an email at podcast at bookriot.com. By the time this episode will have come out, you will have heard Rebecca talk to Kevin Wynn and Lisa Lucas about 
the best books of 2016 so far. Man, that was so much fun. I, I haven't listened to it yet because it's not published in the feed yet, but it will. By the anyway, we live in the future. You You'll haven't have existed it. yet, right now. <laughs> um, look for that too. If you got feedback about those interviews, we'd sure like to hear them. We're having a good time thinking about them and doing them, but we only want to do them if you like them. So do let us know if you do like them. Um, and uh, let's see. You can follow me on Twitter at the Jeff O'Neill. O-N-E-L can find her at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Say thanks so much to Invasion of the Tearling for sponsoring the show. And I'm your biggest fan for sponsoring the show. Go check those out. Available wherever books are sold. Uh, maybe and even in a book you, vending machine. Yes, that would be cool. Yeah. And if you want to come to Book Riot Live, oh, yes. which you should, we would love to see you. We'll be doing a live version of this podcast, mm-hmm. which was maybe the funniest that we have ever been for an entire <laughs> well, hour. Well, we got to work blue. Uh, we'll be doing that. We have so many great speakers coming. Uh, Walter Mosley, Mara mm. Wilson. I'm super excited yes. about that. And if you're into Night Vale, you will be excited about her as well. Go to bookriotlive.com to see the full speaker lineup. And you can use the offer code wheelhouse to save $20 on your registration as a Book Riot podcast listener. Cool. All right, Rebecca, we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.